about halfway through the book of Philippians. We've been going at it now for about five or six weeks, and we've got a couple more weeks in front of us. Um, And what I want to do, I want to begin by reminding us of something we talked about that first intro week, and that is when we're studying Scripture, it is extremely important that we don't begin with the question, what does this mean to me? And I know that in most Bible studies, you know, when we tend to study Scripture, that's the first question we ask. Well, what does this mean to me today? But when we do that, when we take Scripture and simply start with the question, what does it mean to me today? We tear it out of its historical context, and then we can twist it to mean just about anything that we want. And we've seen the way that Scripture has been misused. We've seen the ways that people have taken just a couple of verses out of the context of what's being, you know, out of the conversation that it's happening in the paragraphs around it. They've taken it out of the context of what Paul or any of the other biblical writers were writing about. And then they've said, well, this is what it means to us today. And in the process, they've done extreme damage, not only to Scripture and its message, but also to, you know, the Bible itself. And and to those of us, you know, it's very easy for people to go, you know what, all of it is junk. Because we have misused scripture. And so one of the things I want us to do really quickly is just look at, you know, perhaps the the right way of studying scripture really, really quickly. And then we're going to dive in. Okay, so can we throw the um, baseball and diamond up there? Oh, yeah, that's the first thing. When studying scripture, you need to respect the historical and literary context of it. So rather than asking the question of what does this mean to me? And if you have your bulletins, pull those out because I have this little graphic in there. Can we go to the next graphic? We don't have it, do we, on there? No, okay, so you're going to need your bulletins for this. Awesome. And if you don't have one, they're back there. Think of, think of a baseball diamond for a moment, okay? Think of third, uh, you know, third base. I'm trying to figure out which. So third base over here is the question, what does this mean to me today? Well, anybody who's played baseball knows if you hit the ball, regardless of how hard you hit it, if you run to first ba- or third base first, you're out. You're, you're, you're doing it wrong. You're breaking the rules, if you will. You need to run to first base, then to second base, then to third base before you can ever go home. So first base, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, what is this actually saying? What do the words mean? And rather than just taking the words themselves and saying, what does this mean? We need to understand those words in the context of the sentences that they're being used in and the paragraph that it's a part of and the entire book itself. Because if we just tear a couple of verses out, it's very easy for us to say, well, these words mean this and we give it our own context. So the first question is, what do those words actually say? The second base then is, what did this mean to the audience to which it was written. We have to remember that the Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, each of which, although inspired by God, were writing into specific circumstances. The people who were receiving the scriptures, who were reading it, understood it a certain way because of what was going on in their lives. And we can't try to pull it into the 21st century and say it means this today without first asking the question, what did it mean to them in the first century? Does that make sense? Then and only once we've grounded Scripture in what it's actually saying and what it meant to its original audience can can we then ask the question, well, what does this mean to us today? Third base. And then home plate is how should we respond? What is our natural response to this out of what Scripture is telling us in light of what it meant to its original audience? Okay? So that's the backdrop. We want to 
rightly understand scripture. We want to work it out with fear and trembling, not like Ken was saying, beer and stumbling. So, so I love that. I love you, Ken. So um, what we want to do, we are going to dive into Philippians chapter 3 today, but I want to take a little bit of a detour. It may seem like a detour, but it's all going to be backdrop to our reading today. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to take a quick jaunt through Israel's history on one particular point, and that is the covenantal relationship of the nation of Israel with their God, Yahweh. God created everything. The heavens and the earth, he created the animals, he created man. And he had an intimate relationship in the garden with man, didn't he? But then we made some choices. We decided that you know, Adam and Eve decided, hey, you know, we think God may be holding out on us. We're going to try to eat this fruit because we feel like, you know, God may be holding something back on us. And in the process of their disobedience, a rift was created between man and their God. And that rift is something that has been perpetuated throughout history. But God wasn't willing to simply allow that to remain. And so he decided, I'm going to pursue my people, not simply a people, but all of mankind. And I'm going to do it by choosing and creating for myself a nation. And this nation is going to be a holy nation set apart to be my ambassadors. They will be priests to the rest of the world, representing me to them. And so he begins with a man, a guy named Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. And you are going to be the father of a great nation. Now, at the time that he said this, Abraham didn't have any kids and he was getting way up there in years. God says, hey, I'm God. Nothing is out of my ability to do. And so he provides Abraham with a child, a guy named Isaac, out of which this nation of Israel will come. But he makes this in, in chapter 17 of Genesis, he actually reaffirms a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is something stronger than a promise. It's the same, it, the closest thing that we have to us today is the marriage covenant. It is pledging oneself for better or for worse. I give myself to you, you give yourself to me, we will work together. And he says this in Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And now he begins to go through the details of the covenant that he, the promises that he's making to Abraham. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is the covenant with you. This is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, which means the father of many. For out of you will come many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan the area surrounding Israel today, that whole land, I promise to give you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So here's God's end of the, the covenantal relationship. I'm going to be your God and the God of your descendants. I'm going to be, create a great nation out of you. Out of you, 
you know, this nation of Israel will come. I'm going to give you the land, this promised land of Canaan to be your home, and I will continue to be your God. Now, here's your side of this covenantal relationship. Verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, um, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant, and any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God's end of the bargain. I'll be your God. I promise this land to you. I'm going to create a great nation out of you. You will be my representatives. Their end of the bargain, circumcision, which in, in many ways is the closest thing I can think of is circumcision was to them like the wedding ring is to my marriage covenant with Kathy. On the day that I said yes to my wife, I put this ring on as a tangible reminder, both to myself and to others, that I am no longer my own, that I have covenanted myself, I have promised myself I have a relationship with a woman that goes beyond just how I feel or beyond circumstances for better or for worse. She's my wife. But the interesting thing about symbols, especially tangible ones, is over time, we can often, we can begin to focus more energy on these signs and actually miss the point or the heart of them. That's a human tendency. It doesn't always happen, but it often happens. Imagine for a moment, on the day that I said yes to Kathy, the day that I said I do, I put this ring on my finger and I became legally her husband. But then I continued to live like I was a bachelor. I still hung out with my friends and made choices as if I was a bachelor. I continued to look at my finances as my finances. It didn't have any bearing on her. I continued to hang out, maybe even flirt with women as if I didn't have a covenantal relationship with my wife. Would you say that I understood what it meant to be a husband to my wife? Absolutely not. Would you say that I was taking this seriously? This is simply an outward sign. Now, which do you think my wife would prefer? And I realized that she would prefer both. But if she had to choose one, which one do you think she would prefer? That I wear a ring or that I be a husband to her? Husband. In the same way, on that day with Abraham, God was covenanting with him saying, I take you to be my son. I'm your father. We are going to create a nation out of this. But I want you to choose me and I will choose you. I want you to take an outward external sign, the sign of circumcision, But God was more interested in something deeper than just the outward sign. He was interested in Abraham's heart. And he was interested in the heart of the people that would come out of that, the nation of Israel. He was interested in their heart. And the reality is, as you look at the history of the Israelites and their relationship with God, they kind of miss the point a lot. Over and over and over, it seems that they externally honored God and said, yes, Yahweh, he's our God, but 
then they made choices, especially as they got into the promised land and they got comfortable and they were around other nations. They began to choose the gods of those nations as well, right? Because, hey, you know, we might as well hedge our bets here. And so some 600 years before Jesus, and you can turn here if you want to Jeremiah. It's right after the the book of Isaiah. It's right about in the middle. Jeremiah chapter 9. It's also in your notes. If you just one really quick, we're going to read two verses and we're going to move on. Again, this is all backstory to help us understand what Paul is responding to in Philippians chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25. God speaking through one of his prophets, a guy named Jeremiah, some 600 years before Jesus is ever born, God said this to his people. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Amnon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised. And even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. What's God saying? It's not enough to wear a ring. It is not enough to take the physical reminder of the covenant if you don't live your covenant with me. I'm not interested simply in an external outward sign. I want your heart. Jesus said something pretty similar some 600 years later. As people were coming, flocking around and wanting him to feed them, heal them, teach them to to be their rabbi. And he looked at the crowds of people that were flocking around him. He said, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus showed us what it looks like to be fully in, didn't he? Because he didn't want to necessarily go to the cross. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's pleading with God, if there's any way other to to do this, Let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. I submit my life to you. And so Jesus went willingly to the cross, albeit with a lot of fear, knowing what was in front of him. And he hung on that cross, taking upon himself the punishment that was due us. So that although we have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous expectations, we can be called sons and daughters of God because of what he did on the cross. That was the gospel message that Paul began to preach as he traveled around to Gentile city to Gentile city. The the majority of people he was preaching to were not necessarily Jews who had grown up with the Old Testament. These are Gentiles, non-Jews. And as he traveled around, this was the heart of his gospel message. What we Jews have been powerless to do to follow the law, to somehow climb the rungs of the ladder of righteousness, to reach the goal of righteousness and right relationship with God, we've tried to do it by the law, and I'm telling you, we cannot do it. But the good news is that God knew that, and he loves us enough that he didn't simply turn a blind eye. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to take that penalty upon himself so that we can say, and I declare to you today, and this is the the heart of Paul's message, we are saved by grace 
through faith in Christ, not by works, not by anything that we've done so that nobody can stand up here and boast, look what I've done. Look how good I am. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, so that nobody can boast, so that nobody can point to their own works and say, I've done it. Well, he began to start churches founded upon that gospel message. And then he would move on to the next city and the next city. Well, in the vacuum that was left by Paul, there would be others that would come to these cities to teach as well. There would be others that would begin to percolate in and they would bring their own brand of teaching. Some of these were Jews that had believed in Jesus. Messianic Jews who said, yes, okay, Jesus may be the Messiah, but... If you want relationship with God, if you want right relationship, then you'd better follow the law. And particularly, if you want a right relationship with God, then you cannot turn a blind eye to the Abrahamic covenant. You must be circumcised. You must check that box. Otherwise, your faith in Jesus is empty. It's null and void. They began to go into into, the city of Galatia, and we see Paul just yelling in his letter to the Galatians. No, you're missing the point. They say you need to be circumcised. Man, I just wish that the knife would slip and completely emasculate those people who say you need to be circumcised. He didn't, you know. Paul said it how he felt sometimes. Um, So he's already seen this kind of false brand of teaching saying the gospel message and legalism. And he was concerned for the Philippian church. He was concerned for all of his churches. We read in one last verse, and I'm just going to read this really quickly, and then why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3, but let me read just a couple of verses from Romans chapter 2. Because he said this in his letter to the Roman church. Again, a church made up largely of Gentiles, non-Jews, and he said this to them. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by effort, not by the written code, not by following the rules or climbing the religious rungs. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Okay? So this was an issue that Paul was encountering again and again and again, and he was having to address in all of the different churches, in all of these different Gentile cities. And it was no different in the city of Philippi. Whether the, the false Judaizers, which is just a word for these, these Jewish believers who were saying you need to get circumcised in order to be a, a follower of Yahweh, whether they had already come in and started teaching that brand of theology, or he was just trying to make sure that they were on the lookout for them, we're not quite sure. But he does address it in chapter 3. He says, finally, brothers, and this is kind of tailing off of what he talked about last week. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I find it no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again and again, and it's a safeguard for you. And now he begins to, he switches gears and he starts to warn them. Watch out for those dogs. He's talking about the Judaizers, these people who are preaching a false gospel of legalism. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who submit our lives to Jesus Christ by faith 
and we accept the grace that he's handed to us. We are the circumcision. We who worship the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In a lot of ways, he kind of holds up two ways of approaching God. One way is here's the ladder of religion. Let me see how well I can climb the rungs. Let me see how well I can follow the tenets so I can somehow earn my way to God and my righteousness. And he's saying that's one way of doing it. And we have found that it is impossible to ever be good enough to be declared righteous in God's sight. The other approach to God is a recognition that there's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. But God knew that. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ to die in our place, to take upon himself the penalty for our sins so that through him we can be declared righteous. You can't do both. You can't take both the ladder and the gift and combine them and say, this is how you do it. So, we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. Now, Paul goes into, hey, do you want to talk about the ladder? Well, if anybody could ever point to the ladder and say, hey, I've done all of those things, it's me. And then Paul begins to enumerate the ways that he lives up to the letter of the law. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. Every male child of Israel must be circumcised on the eighth day. I was. Of the people of Israel, I was born an Israelite. Of the, tribe of, ben- of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that gave Israel its first king, Saul. I'm of that tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Okay, I follow the law. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Paul himself was trained by Gamaliel, one of the most influential rabbis of that day. He, he's saying, I know the law. I know every little bit of it. As for zeal, you want to know if I'm committed? Man, when I thought that the church was going against Yahweh, I persecuted the church. I was standing there giving my affirmation to people being stoned as heretics. Don't ever question my zealousness for my God. As for legalistic, you want to know if I'm, if I'm following the rules? Righteous, faultless. He's not saying I was, he was perfect, that he never made a mistake, simply that he followed the law. And when he did stumble, he did everything in the law that was, that was set out to make himself ceremonially pure and righteous again. Paul's saying, hey, if anybody has the right to kind of cross their arms and say, yeah, I'm good, it's me. And yet look at how he responds here. Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. These things that you Judaizers hold up as important, that you celebrate, that you tell all of these Gentile converts they must do, I consider those rubbish, trash, garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but from which is found through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. 
I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I desperately want relationship with God. But Paul is the first to say the things that the world holds up, the things that these Judaizers, these false teachers come in and say, these are the things you need to do. (laughs) I don't find my identity in that anymore. My identity is found in Christ. My righteousness is not by what I do. It's by what he has done for me. That's where I find my righteousness. You know, um, it is interesting that today circumcision has kind of lost its value in our society. Kids still get circumcised, but it's more for aesthetic reasons than for theological reasons, right? Because, you know, maybe it's the father was circumcised, therefore the son was circumcised, and then some people are just foregoing it altogether. And yet, Paul's words and his caution here aren't lost on us. They are relevant to us. But the focus maybe shifts a little bit, maybe from circumcision. But we have our own rights. We have our own hoops that we tend to focus on jumping through in the church. And just like the wedding ring, as a tangible symbol, can can sometimes take on the focus and we forget about the actual purpose of it, the heart behind it. Some of the rights that we have in in the church today have taken far too great an emphasis and we've missed the heart of them. I want to focus on two this morning. The first one that I want to focus on this morning is the sinner's prayer. How many of you have heard something like this? If you want a relationship with God, all you need to do is pray a prayer and invite Jesus into your heart and you'll have eternal life. Raise your hand if you have heard that or something like that. I'll be the first to say I have not only heard that, but I have said those words or some rendition of them, even from this stage. Is there anything wrong with praying a prayer, inviting Jesus into our hearts? Absolutely not. It plays an integral role in a relationship with God, much like the day that I, decided, the day that I got down on my knee and I asked Kathy to marry me was an integral question. Would you be my wife? And yet, that wasn't the finish line, was it? That was the beginning of our relationship. What if I focused all of my energy on, on, on kind of setting up, you know, how I asked her, but then I spent no energy whatsoever on actually being a husband to her? Would you say that I missed the point? Absolutely. Do you realize? Well, you know, in the, in the same way that the, the invitation to ask a woman to marry you is the first step in a relationship, The sinner's prayer is a lot like that in our relationship with God. It is the first step. It's not the finish line. Do you realize that Jesus nowhere ever said, if you want to have a relationship with me, if you want to have eternal life, all you need to do is pray this prayer and accept me into your heart and then you'll spend eternity with me. Nowhere does he say that. Instead, he says this, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Radically different things, aren't they? One is an invitation to punch your ticket. Is an invitation to get fire insurance. Turns him into, a fire, into an insurance salesman. 
The other is an invitation to relationship. There's nothing wrong with praying a prayer, but the moment that we begin to look at it as something that we have to do, a hoop we have to jump through to have relationship, and once we've done that, we're good to go and we can just grow complacent in our relationship with Him, is the moment that we have bought into the lie and we focused on the external and missed the heart. The second right that we have in the, in the Christian church today that in many ways plays a very similar role to circumcision in the first century is baptism. You've heard from both Lee and I, there's nothing magical about baptism. You cannot be saved by getting baptized. Baptism is an external declaration of an internal decision. Much like the marriage ceremony is an external declaration to our friends and our family. I take this woman to be my wife for better or for worse. And we celebrate it and it is an integral part of our journey. But I could always just go over to the court and have them sign the document and make us husband and wife. I don't need to have the ceremony. But the ceremony is special. And so many of us choose to go that route because we want to celebrate it. We want to publicly declare it. But the moment that we start looking at these things, you know, I mean, the question that a lot of us ask when we come to Jesus is, what do I need to do to stay out of hell? What do, I, what do I need to do so that I'm safe? And in that sense, we are turning our relationship with God into fire insurance. We are making Jesus a, an insurance salesman. And that completely misses the point that he is not inviting us simply to protect ourselves from hell. He is inviting us into an intimate relationship with him. That doesn't begin when we die. It begins when we submit our lives to Him. Another thing that we have this tendency to do when we begin to focus on checking the boxes or jumping through the hoops, doing the right religious things, is that we look at Jesus simply as a Savior. And we forget that He also wants to be our Lord. Imagine if I went to Kathy and I said, hey, you know, I really, really like you. You're an amazingly beautiful woman. And I would love to get married to you, but I like these parts of you, this stuff over here, not so much. So can I, can I, get, can I marry this part of you? And, and let's just forego that. Would that fly? Ladies, would any of you accept that invitation from a guy? Probably not unless it was Brad Pitt, in which case you might think about it for a minute. Long story short is this. We cannot accept part of Jesus and not all of it. We can't have part of a relationship and not the whole thing. And yet, how many of us do that? How many of us separate Savior and Lord and we say, you know what? Jesus can be my Savior. (laughs) I need a Savior. I want somebody who will take my sins and wash them clean. I'll take that. But this whole Lordship thing, I'm not cool with that. Because the reality is I really like being the captain of my own ship. I really like being in control. I really like the lifestyle that I've chosen, and I'm not really ready to give that up. So you know what? He can be my Savior. I'll pray this prayer. I'll get baptized. I'll show up at church. I'll even throw some money into the basket every once in a while. But I'm not ready to give Him my heart. I'm not ready to give Him control. I'm not ready to submit my life. I'll tell you, and I'll be really bluntly honest with you right now, 
perhaps the single greatest fear that I have as a pastor is not that I would fall short, although that's a huge, huge fear of mine. Perhaps the single greatest fear that I have for the church as a whole, but also for Lighthouse and for myself is that there are some of us in this room this morning who are a Christ follower by name. You've prayed a prayer. You've undergone baptism, perhaps. But you're not actually following Jesus Christ. You call yourself a Christian, but you have yet to submit your life to Christ. And I'm terrified that there are some people in here who on the day that they stand before Jesus Christ, he'll say, be gone, I never knew you. Wait a minute, look at all the things we did for you. I never knew you. You never chose to follow me. You never chose to allow me to be your Lord. Yeah, a prayer is great. That public declaration of baptism, that's great. But you never gave me your heart. And that terrifies me. And I will be the first to say it terrifies me that I may be living that sort of double life. That externally I am one person and internally my heart is my own. And I am the captain of my own ship. I want to read a couple more verses of what Paul says because he continues. But before we do that, I want to back up just a little bit so again we can have the context of what he's been talking about to lead us into what he says. Because I will tell you that the single greatest danger to any relationship is complacency. The moment we start getting complacent is the moment that the foundation of that relationship begins to rot. And Paul addresses that sort of, that heartbeat of complacency here. We're going to back up to verse 7 and we'll get kind of a running start into those last couple of verses we're going to read this morning. Whatever was to my profit, these things that these Judaizers focus on, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, what's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now listen to these words, because this is Paul, the guy who wrote half of the New Testament speaking them. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect. Excuse me? If anybody, apart from Jesus, could have said with all confidence, I've done enough. I'm good. You know what? I have been righteous enough. I've lived up to the letter of the law. I've done everything. I have found my life in him. I've brought so many people to know Jesus Christ. I'm good. I can rest. I can relax. I can stop working on this relationship. I'm good. If anybody could have said that, it's Paul. But he doesn't. He says just the opposite. I want to have that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life with him. Not that I've already obtained it or allow myself to rest. Lost my place. 
But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of for me. And then, in case you didn't get it the first time, he repeats himself. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Now, whether or not he was saved or not is is completely contrary to the point. What is, is the point is his posture towards this relationship with Jesus Christ. One thing I do, forgetting what's behind both of the mistakes I've made, but also this ladder of things that I've tried climbing my whole life, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, eternity spent in intimate relationship with my God, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which, Christ, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Here's what Paul is saying. I cannot grow complacent in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people try to attain their righteousness through the law, through doing the right things. Some people feel like they're at the, at the bottom rung. Some of you in here today look at yourself and you go, there's no way I could ever be declared righteous in God's sight. Look at the junk that I deal with. Not only what I've done, but I'm an addict. I'm a screw-up. I'm an adulterer. I, I, I harbor hatred and unforgiveness in my heart. There's no way God could forgive me. And you just kind of are going through the motions Because you desire relationship. And Paul is saying, listen, our identity isn't found in those things. Our identity is found in relationship with Christ. Not in a momentary prayer. Not in a momentary public bath. Not in the rite of circumcision. It's not about this. This needs to follow this. And so I give God my heart. But if I'm truly giving him my heart, if I'm truly allowing him to be my Lord, then I need to continue to submit my life to him. I need to continue to give him my heart. Because the moment that I step back and go, I've done enough. I'm good enough. I've given him enough. Is the moment that we grow complacent in our relationship, just as many of us have experienced seasons of growing complacent in our marriages have grown complacent in our jobs, have grown complacent in areas of discipline, and you've seen in your own life how quickly discipline can degenerate, how quickly a relationship can degenerate. The point of this morning is this. God desires relationship with you deeply desires it. He sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty so that we could be called rightly sons and daughters of God. But simply praying a prayer and getting baptized is not the goal line. It's the starting line. And the invitation for all of us this morning, for me just as much as for you, is to assess the state of our relationship with God and go, God, have I allowed you to be my Lord or am I just simply willing to let you be my Savior and I get to be Lord of my own life? God is desperately desiring intimacy. He desires relationship. But we have a part to play in that. 
We're not going to do it perfectly. That's what Jesus is here for. But please, please don't get focused on the external and miss the heart of this. God's after our hearts. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and I simply want to ask you to consider this question. Where are you at right now in your relationship with God? Have you allowed Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior or simply your Savior? Perhaps you might want to spend the first couple of minutes of this this worship time having an honest conversation with him. Going, God, where have I grown complacent? What are the areas of my life that I have taken the fingers of my heart and gripped onto them and said, these things, you can have everything, but don't ask me for this. Don't ask me to give this up. Don't ask me to do this. Everything else is yours, but don't go into this part of my life. The invitation is to a relationship. And I, I don't share this this morning to cast fear or to cause you to be terrified, am I going to go to heaven? Because far too many of us are missing the point. Eternity doesn't start when we die. Eternity starts when we submit our lives to Him. You do not have, you can start eternity now if you're willing to allow Him to be your Lord. And I desire that for me just as much as for you. So this message this morning is just as much for me as it is for you. Are you allowing Jesus to be your Lord? Let's pray. God, first off, I thank you that you don't demand perfection, but rather you move towards us in the form of Jesus Christ and you allowed a way for us to be made perfect in your sight. And we declare that our identity and our righteousness is found in you and not in our works. And God, I know that you desire strongly to have a relationship with us. It's not a momentary decision that we made decades ago or even a momentary decision that we're considering making even this morning. But it's a lifetime spent in a dynamic relationship with you. God, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you help us to grow more in love with you. Jesus, would you show us the places where we have been holding back and trying to maintain our own hold on our lives? Father, would you forgive us for falling short? Would you empower us to be not only your sons and daughters, but your ambassadors to our neighbors, our families, our friends, and the people we come in contact with. God, may we be a church that's marked by people living eternity now in relationship with you. For it's grace that we've, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not by works, so that none of us can stand up here and say, look what I've done. Look what a good person I am. And in that, we find our rest. We find our joy. 
Jesus in your holy name. Amen.